is Mozart's Symphony Number no. 40 in G minor. Welcome once again to tonight's show. It is Sunday, April 3rd. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C. I'm once again joined by Michael Kaufman, an expert on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. And we have another new guest tonight, Ivan Kanapethy, former director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia on the National Security Council and form, former U.S. military attaché in Taiwan. Ivan is also a former Marine fighter pilot and is now vice president in the Indo-Pacific practice at Beacon Global Strategies. So literally no one better to talk about implications of this war on Taiwan and potential for Chinese invasion there. But let's get started with you, Mike. Uh, lots of things happened this week, including some pullout of Russian forces from Kiev region, from Kiev Oblast, from Chernihiv. Uh, can you give us uh, a few minutes overview of what you're seeing happening on the ground and what what the implications of that are, please? Uh, sure, and thanks for reminding me back to, to be in the discussion. So like, I think that in the past uh, week and certainly the last several days, we've seen a steady Russian withdrawal from the northern part of Ukraine. It looks like they're pulling back from both sides of the Dnieper River around Kiev. I initially thought they might hold some forces back up north to try to fix Ukrainian units up there, but they're not. They, I think, are likely going to withdraw most, if not all, of the forces that they've had in the, that part of the campaign. And that's not a significant retreat, and I'll be honest, I think it's a significant defeat uh, for the Russian military there. And they're also pulling back in the northeast as well by Sumy from the looks of it. Uh, they are likely going to load up those units in Belarus on to rail wagons. And then they're probably going to redeploy those units, which are still viable to fight, all the way down around Ukraine to prepare for the attack on the Donbass. They've been pushing in the Donbass in the past several weeks. The Donbass is now the main front and, frankly, probably the only front to watch. That includes the battle for Mariupol. Uh, Russian forces captured a zoom, although it took them weeks to do that. At this point, it doesn't look like there's going to be any sort of large-scale envelopment of the Ukrainian forces in the Donbass, which is called the Joint Forces Operation. And the reason for that is, frankly, it took the Russian forces several weeks to try to get uh, to a zoom. And the past week plus, they haven't made any moves from Zaporizhia, which is the southern part of that front. And so increasingly, it looks like they're going to try to push Ukrainian forces out of the Donbass to sheer firepower and density and mass. The one area where you see some pockets or salients form is in a sort of northeastern part of the Ukrainian positions. There's a town there called Severodonetsk, where you see it's kind of maybe in a semi-envelopment. But in general, that looks like the fight to watch in the coming weeks and the focus of Russian campaign. In the southwest, they've tried to stabilize lines between Kherson and Mykolaiv. I think Ukrainians have managed to make some gains there as well. But it looks like Russian forces there are just holding. Now they're going to try to concentrate what units they have available on the Donbass. They've also brought up reinforcements from other, par other parts of the Russian forces. Those units that had yet to contribute to this war uh, had sent additional battalions. So that looks like the... The current setup is they're going to concentrate what military power they have left, draw down in the northern parts of Ukraine, uh, and and probably retreat al along some of the other fronts. Got it. So, so I know last week you said that you thought they might uh, 
keep some forces in the region to pin the Ukrainian forces, prevent them from reinforcing the Donbass. I, I guess at this point in the war, it's safe to assume that anything that's smart for the Russians, they're going to do the exact opposite. But but any thoughts on why they didn't, they're not leaving anything in Kiev and Chernihiv and looks like they're pulling out of Sumy as well? So they're probably going to keep pressure on Kharkiv and Sumy, right? But I don't think that they can uh, blockade either city at this point. They've given up on that. The Ukrainian counterattack had opened up the road between Sumy and Poltava in the past week. But I do think there will be some Russian forces still around in those area to maintain pressure. Uh, the real reason why is they've been dithering and suffering considerable attrition up north for several weeks. They had no prospect of encircling Kiev. They had basically reached a stalemate several weeks into this war there. And keeping any forces there, unfortunately, uh, would create the same problem for the Russian military. They are short on manpower, right? And they need all the units they can for the next phase of this war, which is in the Donbass. I think that's the main reason why. And so to what extent uh, it's smart or not is debatable. I'm not sure necessarily if I, if I kind of make the counter argument. It would have been smart for them to stay up in the north with no hope of any kind of success and suffer steady attrition to those forces either. That said, it now looks like they are really focused on the Donbass, as the Russian Ministry of Defense had announced well over a week ago. Speaking of troop numbers, you just did an excellent thread a few hours ago on the possibility of Russia increasing troop numbers for this fight, upcoming fight in Donbass. Can you talk a little bit about that, what, what their potential options are? and uh, what is likely to happen. Sure. Well, looking long-term, they're in a real fix. And the reason why is that they're trying to have a war with Ukraine, which outside of Russia is de facto the largest country in Europe and has conducted full national mobilization and has extensive support from the West, while keeping a special operation. Right? That means that Russia is fundamentally not able to conduct mobilization itself. Russia's army is not that big. Of the active battalion tactical groups that are contract staffed or mostly contract staffed, at this point, you can consider functionally everything committed to this war, right? They've taken significant losses in the initial force that they deployed. They've reinforced it by scraping what they could from the rest of the active duty standing force. There aren't really more battalions left in the tank right now as this. This is why they're shifting forces around. Um, what they have available, I threw a dart at the board. This is not at all an accurate number. And so that maybe they have around 80 BTGs equivalent of available in this fight at the moment moving forward. And that's essentially. And, and, a, B, B, and a BTG is how many troops? And the battalion tactical group on average, maybe around 750. Um, but they vary. They vary. This is just a rough unit of measurement, right? They're, they actually yeah. deployed these units with their headquarters and support. So not all of them are BTGs, but it's kind of a, a, a way to measure uh, uh, the force and, and potential combat effectiveness. Okay, so all that being said, um, now there is technically more available in the Russian force, but the, they're not implementing stop loss. When they announced on April 1st that they're taking in the uh, biannual draft of 134,500 uh, conscripts, they also released conscripts whose terms of service have been fulfilled and expired, right? Because they've not declared a state of war in Russia, they can't keep the conscripts beyond their terms of service. What they're trying to do instead behind the scenes is what could be called kind of a partial. Uh, or piecemeal mobilization. 
they are trying to offer a lot of money for conscripts and for men with prior service experience to sign contracts, all right, so that they can help fill out the rest of the formations. Now, the Russian military ground forces in particular, on average, tend to be manned at maybe around, let's say, 75% readiness. This is why they have the tiered readiness system, and that's why each tactical unit is supposed to generate two battalion tactical groups and then maybe a third one if the manning level is raised, okay? So those two groups that you could get, sorry, those two battalion tactical groups that you could get from all these units have already been sent. Imagine they're already in the theater, they're already in the fight, right? So then the question is, how will the Russian military get manning but without declaring a state of war? and without conducting mobilization, and without doing a big national call. And so it looks like they're trying to square the circle by piecemeal offering a lot of money to get contractors. They can then uh, deploy additional battalions. That will get them some more additional capability uh, in, in maybe the coming month, two months, whatnot, not immediately. Um, but, the, but after that, there isn't much, right? So they can't, they can't have both a special operation and a very large-scale conventional war, if this makes sense. They're so, somewhat stuck politically. Now, do, do you believe that the current conscripts were actually released? Uh, oftentimes, they're forced to sign contracts, so they become, quote-unquote, professional soldiers after their duty? Uh, right. So tech, usually what happens is they're, they're not forced themselves, Dmitry. What happens actually is during their conscript duty, there are definitely conscripts who are intimidated to sign contracts before their actual terms of service expire. And that happened in the run-up to this conflict. Basically, it, it's, it's, an offer, it's an offer you can't refuse, basically. Well, yeah, they're basically threatened with very hard uh, conditions of service in the coming months, or they sign a contract and they switch status, right? Um, the current conscripts have been released, but they're being enticed by money, if that makes sense. And the money being offered is significant, from what I hear. These are obviously just rumors. But the money is, being, is pretty significant what's being offered at this point. Um, the, the biannual draft is, is a rotation. There's obviously one April 1st to 15th now, and there's a, uh, a second one in the fall. But the big issue remains, okay? Russia has a lot of equipment. It does not have a lot of manpower. That's the reality, right? On the Ukrainian side, there's a tremendous amount of manpower, there's great sort of balance of intangibles if we talk about morale, resolve, all those things. But there isn't a lot of equipment or ammunition, not for sustained counteroffensives and the like, right? And so this is kind of the way I summarize some of that thinking in the thread. Right now, it's fair to say Ukraine is winning, but the battle for the Donbass, the more significant battle, is unfolding now. Uh, the, this battle, I believe, is going to be pretty intense, and it's going to be a very different phase in the war. Given the challenges the Russian military has in terms of manpower availability, Ukraine at the moment has what one could crudely term a window of opportunity, right? At least in this intermediate period, as the Russian military tries to get more manpower and then the political leadership is going to, I suspect, figure out what they want to do come May, whether or not they can continue this war this way, whether or not they have to end it, or if they have to properly declare a state of war. Then we're talking about national mobilization. Very, very different situation. Uh, let's talk about a couple of things that have uh, really uh, um, grabbed the imagination of people over the course of this war. One of them was this convoy, this 
purported uh, 40 mile convoy that was on the way to Kiev. Now, you never actually believed there was a convoy. Can you talk a little bit about what it appears to have been now and, and the implications? Well, so here's the honest answer. Uh, I, I just thought it was framed a bit incorrectly in the way it was discussed in, in media is that there were a series of units and there were several convoys providing logistics, somewhat leapfrogging. But the way it was characterized was as though there was this mass of forces, they were all stuck and stalled out, right? And they were kind of running out of food and fuel and all these things. And I, I don't really think that was true. And I think they actually had some period into the war been able to substantially reorganize the issues there. But here's the big problem we've set up. I often like to identify what you know I call input-output problems in uh, the way something's being discussed or an analysis. And the input-output problem that emerged from this conversation uh, is very straightforward. If there's a 40-mile stuck convoy right between Kiev and Belarus, then how do we explain the rapid withdrawal of Russian troops and their retreat to Belarus? Great point. I mean, Great point. You know, it's just you can't have it both ways, I like to say. So this is like, the, the evidence is pretty clear. They managed to retreat in a relatively ordered manner and fairly quickly. In fact, I commented that the retreat is probably the more organized thing I've seen them do so far in the north in this campaign. Yeah, I think you said it's one of the best things they've done throughout this whole war. And I saw a great comment on Twitter saying that maybe they should stick to their strengths then. Um they, they have taken these Zoom, as you've mentioned, in the Donbass. Can you talk about the importance of that? I know from a logistical perspective, it's a really critical win for them. Well, the, the issue was taking a Zoom. There's obviously rail lines that run to there, but more importantly, it was securing a river crossing, right, into, into the southern part of the region. And it took them quite a few weeks to take a Zoom. They took, I think, heavy casualties in those fights. Uh, they were also pushing in, sort of squeezing in from other areas. So the big challenge for them was that if they could take a zoom rapidly, they could have taken it much more quickly and had pushed up much faster from the south past Zaporizhia, then they could have attempted an operational level encirclement of Ukrainian force in Donbass. That now is highly improbable. Instead, this is more of a kind of a big squeeze, right? And they're going to push with firepower and with more frontal assaults uh, rather than a large envelopment. Uh, and incrementally try to eat away at the Ukrainian positions. Uh, do you think the Ukrainians will try to reinforce those troops now that they don't have to worry about Kiev and Chernihiv uh, and can move troops from there? I'm sure they will. Yeah. And do you think that the threat to Kiev and Odessa, all those cities that we've seen them trying to assault, is now truly over? Um, you know, is there still a possibility that they may take Donbass and then redirect their attention back to the original objectives? Because obviously you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, very nationalistic rhetoric in the Duma, in, on Russian television saying that Donbass is not enough, that we have to take all of Ukraine or this will be the end of Russia. Uh, do you think that's still a p potential uh, assault path for them after the Donbass? So if we're talking the sense of assaulting and taking these major cities like Kiev, like Odessa, I think not. I don't think it's in the cards. I don't think they have the forces for it. When we're talking about actual Russian war aims and potential ambitions. Like we should be frank. It's possible at a bare minimum that they will take the Donbass and then declare victory, right? And uh, perhaps take a hard pause in this conflict, then continue it in another phase. 
or depending on how that fight goes, depending on the level of attrition and exhaustion of Russian forces, you know, if hypothetically, if they are successful, they might be more ambitious, right? And they start, might start moving up towards uh, Zaporizhia or towards Kharkiv and the like in this region, right? At the end of the day, these things are incredibly contingent, and, and I hate making predictions because there's few things uh, as indeterminate and, and difficult to predict as how any kind of battle will go. And in the south, in the city of Kherson, which of course is not part of the Donbass, uh, it's part of the Kherson region, they seem to be digging in, uh, both militarily and politically. They're now anointing mayors in different towns, putting Russian flags on buildings. Uh, does it look like they're planning to keep it uh, for a long time? Yeah, so that's a great question, Matri. Uh, I think there's been uh, some robust discussion on what do they intend to do with the south, both Kherson and at least a large part of Zaporizhia that they currently control. Right, so one thesis has it that at the end of the day, if they reach a big political settlement, they might trade those uh, territories back as, uh, as as part of that agreement while trying to hold on to the Donbass. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm increasingly growing skeptical of that. There's an alternative proposition that they will be occupied and they might themselves turn become into, you know, a Kherson's People's Republic or something like that. There's a possibility that Russia may try to annex that part of the Donbass that controls, or maybe all of it, if it's able to seize all of it. It's unclear. Early on, they were clearly staying emergent. That is, there was not a lot of evidence that they were conducting a sort of political organization you expect to see of a country that intended to actually consolidate and politically integrate those territories. In the last week, I've started to see more of that that sort of raised question marks in my mind as to whether or not decisions have been made in Moscow. Right now, to me, that situation is still unclear. Um, the way I see negotiations going, though, I'm increasingly growing suspicious that Kherson and this part of Zaporizhia might not be traded back to Ukraine under a settlement. That's just where I'm right now. There's just a hypothesis, and you know, I don't have a lot behind that. Yeah, they seem to be bringing people, Ukrainians that used to live in Crimea, after 2014 to take um, charge of some of these cities, obviously very likely to have been cooperating with Russian intelligence services for the last few years. Uh, there was a fascinating development that took place this week as well with the strike on Belgorod, Belgorod and, and a border town in Russia, uh, that looks like an MI-24 helicopter strike that the Russians are saying was Ukrainian. The Ukrainians are denying there was theirs and accusing Russia of striking their own oil storage facility in that city. Uh, what is your take on that? Uh, do you think it was Ukrainians? Do you think it was uh, possibly a rogue unit? Uh, it looks like two helicopters were part of that assault. Um, why would the Ukrainians deny it if it was theirs? I mean, I think it was Ukrainians. And I think that uh, they went after critical infrastructure there both because of the practical value of the attack, but also as part of retaliation. You know, Russia's been striking a lot of Ukrainian critical infrastructure, particularly various types of fuel storage facilities. And there have been a lot of blows traded between the Belgorod region and the Kharkiv region in the past several weeks of this war, actually from the very beginning of it. Uh, why they would deny is a good question. Maybe they didn't want to look like they were escalating direct strikes in Russia. Maybe they didn't want to aid in political mobilization in Russia, so they wanted to conduct a strike. But um, but not actually do anything that could allow the Kremlin to build a case around how Ukraine is attacking uh, mainland Russia. I'm not sure, as always. In this case, I don't have all the answers. But um, 
Let me tell you why I don't think it is. I don't think it is Russian helicopters blowing up fuel they need for their own operation. I'm pretty confident of that one. <laughs> right. Uh, that doesn't seem to make much sense. Uh, our friend Rob Lee uh, posted uh, some photos uh, today about uh, an SU-35, um, Russia's fourth plus plus generation jet uh, that looks like it was downed near Izum. That jet is armed with pretty advanced electronic countermeasures. Uh, how significant is it that uh, the Ukrainians were able to uh, strike that jet? I mean, to me, that's just a tactical vignette. I, personally, I don't see a lot there. Uh, Guy Polsky thinks that looking at the wreck, there's KH-31Ps on that. So strong suspicion that that jet was on a seed mission. And those are very, very dangerous missions to run. Basically, it was trying to suppress enemy air defense. So it was trying to engage Ukrainian air defenses. And that's one of the more hazardous missions you can perform. So beyond that, I don't think there's too much I can add. That's speculation, obviously, because it's a burned out wreck and people are trying to look at it and figuring out what this jet might have been armed with to figure out what mission it had. Uh, other than that, I, I don't think there's too much I can add. I don't think it's really significant. Russia's lost a number of fourth generation aircraft uh, in this fight. Ukraine's lost a lot of S-300s and, and some of the other air defense systems they've had. There's a bit of a war of attrition going on between the Russian aerospace forces and Ukrainian air defenses. And, and who do you think is winning right now, that, that, uh, that fight? Well, it's hard to say, but, you know, from the Russian end, the fight is about trying to establish local air superiority, right, so that they can support forces in particular parts of the theater. They never tried to establish air superiority writ large over Ukraine, and I think it would have been very hard for them, right, because the one thing Russian aerospace force for sure not good at, and people knew that going into this war, is suppression of enemy air defense or destruction of enemy air defense type missions. They're just not uh, something that they have a lot of qualifications for, and they've been trying to do that from the very beginning. So who has the upper hand? I'll be honest. I don't know, but it also depends to what extent Ukraine can regenerate air defenses, right? Because there's a number of European countries that have agreed, I think United States too, um, to supply late Soviet gen uh, air defenses to Ukraine to replace some of the losses they've had. Yeah, the inability of the Russians to uh, establish air supremacy over Ukraine's airspace, I think, has been one of the most fascinating things about this war. Lots of implications for Taiwan that we will talk about with Ivan in a few minutes here. Um, a couple of other, uh, questions for you, Mike. Uh, one of the things that has been really interesting to watch is the evolving attitudes towards this war in Russia. Uh, initially, people were very confused. There's not a lot of preparation of the Russian public towards this special operation, as they call it. But that seems to be changing now. There's a new poll out by Levada Center, an independent polling organization in Russia, um, the last one remaining, uh, where they polled not necessarily people's attitudes towards the war itself, or uh, whether they support it or not, or towards Putin. Uh, but they asked an interesting question of the emotions that the special operation evokes from people. And about 65% said that they were either proud of the operation or happy and delighted with it. Only 5% said they were ashamed. Uh, so you, you seem to have, obviously, it's hard to believe polls taking place in a totalitarian country, but Levada is usually pretty accurate, and I think directionally, um, those polls do tell us a story that the majority of the Russian public, uh, probably about two-thirds, is largely supportive of this war. And you now have this rallying around the flag, the president effect, that often takes place, of course, in countries uh, with a strong national identity. And also with the sanctions going into place on Russia, 
you now have this bunker mentality emerging that the whole world is against us. Uh, we have nothing but ourselves. Uh, we have to, to fight for everything. And even the people that potentially initially were not fans of the operation are now uh, becoming uh, more supportive of this. Do you think this can have a lasting effect? And, and do you buy uh, in this premise that uh, more and more Russians are becoming supportive of this war? Uh, yes and no. So sorry to kind of give you this contradictory answer, but I, I do think that in the initial week or two, it was difficult to see what support there would be in the Russian society for the war. I do think that once the Kremlin began to mobilize public support over time, we started getting more and more evidence that there was substantial support in Russian society. I think we don't have any kind of accurate measures as to the extent of the support. And I had a great conversation today online with Alexei Mignola, who has been uh, one of the people that's been trying to research to what extent the support real or fake. And it's clear that the way a lot of people answer in the polls, some of that support is definitely out of fear or could be, you know, quote unquote, considered fake. And so there's a debate. I mean, his view was the upper limit for Russian support for the war was maybe 50 percent. My view was that it feels as though there's substantial plurality of Russians who support the war. And it could be a significant percentage of Russians beyond that who don't support the war, but are afraid to do anything or speak out. Right. That is that is in their position is essentially uh, in action. And it's very difficult at this point to measure accurately with polls what percentage of Russia support the war because of the big changes that have taken place in Russia and the laws passed since early March. That's kind of where I'm at on the subject. So I think uh, a substantial percentage of Russians do support it. I think that we can't measure accurately right now what percentage that is. I think it might be a bit too early to say that it's anything like a majority or close to a majority, but it's not at all insignificant. Um, and, and I'm afraid all those answers are somewhat unsatisfactory, but uh, it's, it's sometimes better do, to say that we don't know than to say, oh, we actually do know and here are polling numbers. Yeah. Do you buy the premise, though, that the sanctions probably had the opposite of the intended effect that instead of undermining Putin, they actually strengthened his position? So I can't tell yet because not many of the sanctions have yet to really bite and take effect, right? Some of the people have made the argument that Russians may feel this way until they see the downstream effects of the sanctions. I would say in general, probably uh, first they undermine Putin's support and then over time they may have increased it because, look, people are eminently adaptable. If you have no options and you realize that you have to build your life in Russia under sanctions and you're a Russian elite or uh, some anybody else in society, that's the world you have to live in. Um, and generally, there is an expected rally around the flag effect that takes place because nationalism is, you know, nationalism is very real. And few countries are as nationalistic as great powers, or at least those that have a great power um, identity and culture. So I, I would say there would be nothing surprising about that kind of effect taking place in Russia. Yeah. Two other quick questions, and then we'll turn the discussion to Taiwan. Um, so we can't not mention Bucha and the horrible photos are coming out of there. You know, I tweeted a few hours ago that that's probably nothing compared to what we're likely to see come out of Mariupol, given that the Chechens are in charge there. There's Chechens. Uh, we've talked before about how those guys probably have not seen Geneva Conve uh, Convention or care much about it. Do you agree with me that we're probably going to see a lot more atrocities, a lot more horrible things coming out of there in the, in the next coming in the next few weeks? 
I mean, it's looking like this war is going to get even uglier, and it's probably uglier than we appreciate at this stage. The Russian retreat from Bucha and Irpin and around Chernihiv definitely revealed uh, what's been going on during the last five weeks of occupation or so. And um, I, was, I was pretty shocked by what I saw. Although I will say there was a part of me that wasn't surprised because they were deploying units in the run-up to the war, whose mission clearly was to um, set up camps and to uh, manage the population and essentially maybe purify Ukraine, so to speak, um, uh, in, in, within a prolonged occupation. And so essentially, I suspect that probably what you've seen, part of it is uh, Russian soldiers marauding, but part of it is not. It's definitely targeted killings by most likely specific squads. I mean, some of what you see there are people who had their hands tied and executed. Yeah, I I was not at all surprised, given that we've seen that in Chechnya. We've seen that in Syria. This is how they fight insurgencies through just absolute brutality and uh, executions and uh, torture. So um, that to me was just par for the course with the Russian military. Uh, One more question, Mike. Uh, NATO. Uh, we are now seeing much more significant movement from Finland, from Sweden, uh, about the prospects of them joining NATO, pre-allergic reaction coming out of Moscow to those statements. Uh, if, if they do end up moving in that direction, do you expect that there's any danger of a, of a confrontation like we've just, um, like we're witnessing now with Ukraine with those two countries? That's a good question. So I think those countries are likely going to want to have a sense of how fast NATO members are willing to accept them because the window of vulnerabilities between the time when they declare, you know, desire to join NATO and actually getting NATO membership and to try to minimize that windows to the extent they can and, and to maybe, I suspect, try to coordinate behind the scenes, if anything. But um as far as the prospect of confrontation, well, at this stage, I would first say potentially with what, right? Like the Russian military is not in a position right now to invade anybody else. We should be frank, um, unless there's national mobilization. And, and they and they don't have a good history of invading Finland, right? Um, I mean, they have a history of invading Finland. And what I think the more accurate portrayal is, is that invading Finland isn't easy. (laughs) And it's not that the Soviet Union lost either of those wars, but it did very poorly. In fact, this current conflict, as I've said before, has strong analogies to the Soviet-Finnish Winter War of 1939-1940, or at least some parallels to it. But long story short, I don't think Russia's in a strong position right now to invade another country, certainly not a country the size of Finland. And it's ended up in the worst place strategically, to be honest. The worst place you could end up as a power is to be seen as absolutely aggressive and uh, and revanchist or expansionist, and at the same time, looking at Russian military performance, readily resistible, right? There's no worse place to be than being seen as a threat by countries around you and also be seen as a country that can be successfully resisted. I, I believe the phrase is paper tiger, right? Well, that's probably spinning it a little too far in the other direction, naturally, but... Um, uh, I, I think that the overall thrust of a strategic problem, I hope I communicated well. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring Ivan into this discussion. Uh, this was certainly fascinating. But Ivan, first question to you, given everything you've just heard from, from Mike and you've been keenly watching this war, what do you think Taiwan has learned from the Ukrainian forces about how to defend themselves against uh, superior opposition uh, that they might encounter with China? Yeah, it's a great. Uh, thanks for having me, Dimitri. It's a great question, um, and and obviously it's been discussed, you know, variously by folks. I think some of the important points that you know we should kind of lay out initially is that while there are obviously a lot of parallels, we'll talk about those. There's some differences here between China and Russia, right? I mean, literally has ten times the economy, ten times the people. Um, a military budget that's at least four or five times Russia's um, and has been for, for a lot of years now. And so so hopefully, I think one of the things Taiwan's you sort of come into grips with is that they, they need to dramatically raise their expenditures on defense, which are just hovering, you know, roughly around 2%, slightly above. Um, and then, you know, one of the other things that they're, they're, they're looking at is sort of just expenditures, right, of munitions. Um, I think we saw sort of the reports there that, that Zelensky is asking for 500 javelins and 500 stingers a day. Um, you know, at that rate of expenditure, Taiwan's going to run out of those types of munitions, you know, within a couple of days. And, and Taiwan's in a little bit different place where they don't have, you know, a land border with a friendly country um, where they could, sort of expedite resupply of those things. Um, so we have to consider that, you know, the PLA is also learning lessons. Um, and, and one of the big things I think the PLA is thinking about over there in China is sort of, they need to really overinvest, not even think about underinvesting in sort of their initial um, firepower, cyber, fifth column, what have you, sort of strikes, which are really designed to break the defender's ability and will to fight. And, and part of their doctrine, the PLA doctrine, is to establish three things, and we touched on, on one of them at least already, but the three things are air superiority, maritime superiority, and information superiority. And they, they kind of list these as sort of prerequisites to actually moving in and trying to get you know, establish that landing or lodgement and put boots on the ground. Um, and so I think we have to assume that Beijing and the PLA are, are looking really closely at this and, again, are, are, are going to sort of put emphasis on that initial phase. Um, and Taiwan's really got to sort of prep itself for that. So, so let's talk about air superiority because the Russians – have struggled there massively, as Mike has talked about. How do you think the Chinese are going to do at those missions of suppression of enemy air defenses and, and destroying the capabilities of uh, the Taiwanese uh, in terms of their airfields and uh, ability to get those um, F-16s that they're purchasing, 66 F-16s that are on order from the U.S. Uh, to take off? And, and um, what do you think of the Taiwanese uh, air defense capabilities? So the Taiwanese are, are are quite proficient. They're technically and tactically proficient. Um, one disadvantage they have is that um, Ukraine is 
think it's about 17 times the size of Taiwan. And so Taiwan is smaller than the Donbass region and, and almost as close. Obviously, there's a big moat around it that's extremely helpful, but, but pretty close to the adversary. Um, and so there's just not as much room for dispersion. Um, and, and it's quite clear. I think we know the PLA has registered the location of any kind of fixed infrastructure to include air bases, naval um, facilities. And so it, it's going to be tough to sort of, um, I think, I think China, Taiwan can sort of prevent the PLA from achieving air superiority for some time. Um, it's a question of how long uh, they can do that only because I think the PLA has a little bit probably better targeting cycle, but I'll defer to Michael on this, or ability to kind of um, find six, find fix and prosecute, you know, kind of, kind of close the kill chain. And so it'll be hard to sort of protect those air defenses if they're sort of fixed sites. And so Taiwan's best bet would be to focus on sort of mobile uh, capabilities that, can sort of camouflage and get into shelter, um, shoot and scoot type capability. Mike, any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. I just appreciate the opportunity to get one or two finger in on this. So, you know, the Russian problem, which Shannon Mary and I have is, first, you know, Rush, Russian airspace forces uh, had really low capacity to employ PGMs in terms of level of training and availability. They had a lack and, of PGMs. Precision guy ammunition. Sorry, yep. I'm sorry. It's late Sunday, and I'm I'm just dropping acronyms. Um, uh, lack of dedicated uh, uh, electronic intelligence platforms to to basically sniff out uh, activated air defense sites and weak integration of electronic warfare and strike packages. Right. The truth is, this stuff's actually really hard. The United States and the Israeli Air Force make it look easy. But it's actually very hard, especially if you've never done it. The one area of skepticism I'm going to have on China is just that if you've not done this in a war, and if you've not done this against a serious adversary with good capabilities, you'd be surprised how hard it is. A lot of time, many European countries um, let, let the United States uh, run forward with this mission. It is very challenging. One advantage is, of course, um, where Russian uh, airspace force were weak because they didn't have good remotely operated operations uh, remotely operate aviation. So if you have a lot of drones, you can try to saturate air defense that way. Where the Russian Air Force got stuck is because of some of these challenges, they then switched to operating at low altitude, right? And they took their chance with man pads. And when the battlefield has a lot of man pads or short-range air defense on it, you're going to take a lot of losses to that. So you basically take your choice between being shot down by medium-long-range radar-guided air defense or you fly low-altitude penetration. Then you have a chance of being shot down by lots of man pads and the like. Um, my, my kind of view of this is that I'm not going to say anything about the Chinese military, the Chinese Air Force, except to say that I think they probably have a lot more technical capability. But um, when it comes to this particular mission, it, it does come down to force employment, right? It really does. It's this, this very hard to be good at this particular mission. So, Ivan, you're actually a former F-18 pilot. You, you were an instructor in Top Gun. Uh, any any thoughts on this? Any comments on how the Chinese would do? They they certainly don't have any experience doing this in a very long time. Yeah, I think he's absolutely right. It is a extremely difficult mission, extremely difficult for even U.S. and Israeli. I mean, there is actually basically technologically, there's a tremendous advantage to 
the, I guess you'd call it the defender in this case. In other words, the actual air defense side of the house. Um, when you talk about things that are as good as S-300s and or Patriots, um, those are very difficult challenges for aircraft to tackle. My concern with Taiwan um, is that I think the PLA, you know, if they're smart, is going to go after those things with a combination of cruise and ballistic missiles. Um, and again, and so then we have to, you know, they're close enough to do that. They have, as we know, massive numbers of those capabilities there in the region, um, right across the strait, and then also out in the maritime. Um, and, and that's, if they're able to wipe out the, you know, nine or I guess it's 10 Patriot batteries that Taiwan has, and then Taiwan has some indigenous sort of strategic SAM systems, um, then they might be able to, to sort of have at least higher altitude air superiority. Cause I think, you know, the, the lower altitude systems like stingers and things like that will still be a threat. Um, but given the PLA is sort of better technical capabilities when it comes to precision guided munitions, they may be able to kind of continue with the air power and stay at the relatively higher altitudes. And uh, how, how would they take them out? I mean, Patriots can be mobile, right? Um, so if the time you start moving them around, they won't be able to take them out with, with missiles. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. That's what I was trying to get at with sort of the targeting cycle or the kill chain, if you will, and sort of how fast, you know, can China do this? And there's different folks will tell you different things, but they have sort of the overhead imagery, satellites would have the ISR capabilities, and then really launching a ballistic missile, you know, how far it only needs to go, 100, maybe 200 nautical miles. Um, that's, we're talking minutes in time of flight. Um, and a Patriot, unfortunately, isn't what I would call mobile. It's what I would call relocatable. Um, you know, an Avenger system with stingers, that thing's mobile, um, i.e. shoot and scoot. Patriot's going to take you a minimum 30 minutes to set up, 30 minutes to take down. Uh, so so that, that becomes a consideration, I think. Mike, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I kind of saw Russian uh, military make this adaptation about two weeks into the war because they were struggling with CD. What they were doing was they were using drones and various other types of unmanned systems to identify and track Ukraine air defense, and then they were hitting them with laser-guided artillery or... In the case of things like S-300 batteries, they were doing something that um, I, I think connects well with what Ivan was just saying. They were looking at the battery shoot, and then when it would scoot and park itself somewhere, they would then basically uh, ha have real-time uh, track of the system and deliver a long-range standoff precision guy weapon on it, a cruise missile, a ballistic missile or something, because at some point that system has to stop either when it's deployed or when it's redeployed and it's in hiding. And so that's the way they were trying to compensate for the lack of the Air Force's actual ability to do it. Basically, lean back on artillery. Russia is an artillery-heavy force, and it brings a lot of its ground fires and strikes with it. And that's something like China could do maybe just a, a, a somewhat longer range. Got it. Uh, yeah, China, has a, China has an entire service that is the rocket force. So it has Army, Navy, you know, Air Force, and then it has the rocket force. And so they're, they're pretty artillery-heavy, too, if you want to call it that. Yeah, Let, let's move to the ground offensive here. So Taiwan is purchasing M1 Abrams tanks, about 100 of them, slightly more. Uh, Mike and I have talked over the last few weeks about uh, 
the fact that tanks are not yet obsolete, that if you want to take uh, objectives and something that's armored, uh, tanks are still very applicable, but they've certainly taken a lot of hits uh, from javelins and the like um, and laws, etc. in Ukraine. Uh, do you think that's a smart acquisition strategy for the Taiwanese, Ivan, uh, to buy a whole bunch of very heavy-duty tanks uh, on a small island? So I don't think that, you know, tanks are your, are your number one priority. It, it's just a, it's highly urban, and where it's not urban, it's it's highly mountainous. Um, and so not, not a lot of, like, huge, flat, maneuverable terrain for, for armor, frankly, or, or even just generally large maneuver elements. Um, what I will say is that, you know, Taiwan, I think, is operating hundreds of tanks, many of which are, are decades old, um, like several hundred. Um, and, you know, if, if their decision is to upgrade a hundred of them, um, I think that's that's reasonable as long as it's not, I'm going to upgrade, you know, my 600 or 700 tanks that I have. So, so the idea is sort of how much divestment they're going to do. If it's a hundred, you know, I go to next generation and then I take the rest of these armor units and transition to something else, um, which is all it kind of remains to be seen what Taiwan's sort of forced development plan is. Then I think, then I think that's, that's very much supportable. So you mentioned, Ivan, that uh, obviously in Ukraine, it is absolutely critical um, that we're able to keep resupplying them with ammo, with, with various weaponry, uh, as well as humanitarian aid. Um, what would our ability be to do that with Taiwan, uh, presumably through um, uh, some sort of naval assets uh, that we could get up to the island on the eastern side? Do you think we'd be able to do that or would the Chinese have overwhelming capabilities to, to keep us out of that uh, region, either through subsurface or, or surface uh, uh, ships. Yeah, I think I think we have to assume that China's, you know, the, the plan, we just talked about air superiority, the part of the plan obviously is also maritime superiority. And that's what this is about. It's about basically setting an embargo around Taiwan when they say maritime superiority. I mean, Taiwan's Navy itself um, maybe able to push back a little bit, but just given the quantity, you know, the number of ships they have, um, it, it's not, it's, it, you know, just through attrition, it's only going to last so long. It's ultimately, um, I think initially the PLA is going to be quite successful setting this embargo, just given how close it is to China's own coast, um, and sort of the anti-ship capabilities that China has even just emanating from their own coast. And so others won't be able to get in for some time, you know, depending on sort of how this this, uh, this war, I guess, evolves. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of the things that I think surprised a lot of people, maybe unfairly, um, is uh, how well the Ukrainians are defending, how ferociously they're defending their freedom, their country. Um, what, what's your view of the Taiwanese? Do, do you think that they will put up as much of a fight as the Ukrainians have in this situation? Yeah, no. So, so this is interesting, Dmitri, where there is one sort of political parallel, right? And I'll, I'll defer to you and Michael to correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of, you know, with Putin and with Xi Jinping, sort of the legitimacy and the legacy questions are sort of in, entwined with this ethno-nationalism, um, 
you know, I think Putin and Xi are roughly the same age. They've been in power for a long time. And, and what you had, you know, following Crimea and in Eastern Ukraine in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, was sort of this rapid acceleration or, you know, expansion, solidification, if you will, of like a Ukrainian self-identity. Well, you've, you've seen a little bit of the same thing in Taiwan, a result of what happened in Hong Kong a couple of years ago. And so um, there really is sort of, you know, this, this, especially the younger generations in Taiwan, this desire um, to sort of maintain Taiwan's way of life, you know, and, and really sort of looking across the strait at China and looking at Hong Kong and saying that that's not what I want. Um, and this Taiwanese self-identity. So I think, I think there's a lot of potential there now that the, all the training that happened, you know, in Ukraine since 2014, obviously that has not been replicated, uh, but, but there's obviously room and, and promise and potential for that. So that's interesting, right? Because the, the KMT, of course, that was a ruling party for many decades that established um, the, uh, the ta- Taiwan after losing the civil war uh, was very much of the view that there's one China. Um, of course, in their view, it was Taiwan run China, uh, but it was one country. So are you seeing a shift now in the, in the younger generation where they're no longer looking at this as we're the same people, but we've got our own nation, we've got our own identity? Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. In fact, um, you know, in, in, in polls, and there's always, you know, like, like Michael's saying, you know, questions about polls, but, but it seems pretty clear that the Taiwanese people are willing to fight for their way of life. Now, how you define fight is another question. Um, they, do, they don't particularly see the military establishment in a very positive light, and that has sort of historical reasons, actually, that has to do with the KMT and sort of martial law in the, you know, in, in a generation ago. Um, but they are, they do seem to be willing to fight, and I think while the number one goal should be sort of to prevent that lodgement, right? That landing, that successful landing operation. There, there also is a lot of room to create, you know, a civil, civil defense capability like, like you see in, you know, a lot of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the things that uh, we, we, of course, have uh, seen in Ukraine is not only are they using Western weaponry, but they have, or, maybe had a very robust domestic defense industry that has been producing a lot of weaponry, able to do a lot of maintenance on their weapon systems. Um, the Russians have targeted that extensively. What is the situation in Taiwan? Do they have a lot of domestic manufacturing capacity? So if they are isolated through a block, naval blockade, can they continue manufacturing weaponry that they're going to need for the fight? Yeah, that's a good question. So even whether they continue, I'll tell you what, Taiwan's very good at shipbuilding. Um, They also produce their own small arms. They also produce, um, I guess, an N-law type weapon called the Kestrel um, that that I think, you know, appears to be very effective. Um, They don't have as many of all those things as they as they should have. And hopefully that's that's the lesson from Ukraine, like we talked about, not just javelin stingers, but also small arms and these these analog type weapons. Um, but they they could conceivably produce those. There's a question about how much 
how many how many foreign inputs go into those and whether they have enough sort of stockpiled of the of the raw materials if you will um to actually do that because again when you're when you're stuck on an island and you're facing a maritime blockade that becomes a huge challenge you know i mean energy you know not just arms and munitions but just energy you know becomes a question food frankly um and so so being able to stockpile enough to do all those things i think uh, is critical for taiwan how, how much do they have in terms of indigenous production of both food and energy um are they completely reliant on outside parties for that yeah i mean there's there's a couple nuclear plants still operating from an energy standpoint, but I, I would imagine those you can't count on keeping those running, you know, if you're being attacked either. Um, and so energy is just going to be a question of how much they have stockpiled. I mean, they don't actually have, you know, indigenous oil or gas or anything like that. Um, and, and, and I think is you know, so, solar, is solar at all a factor or no? There's some wind power in Taiwan, but I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think renewables are a huge uh, percentage yet. You know, they're, they're trying to go in that direction. I think just like everybody else is, but it's still, you know, no, no better than the rest of us, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and food. And food, you know, it, you could probably self-sustain for some amount of time, um, you know, like weeks or even months or longer, but, but it's going to, you know, obviously become a challenge at some point. In fact, you know, um, but Taiwan, you know, they have obviously good, you know, fishing industry, depending on whether they're able to, you know, get out there and do that. They have, you know, a lot of fruit, um, but I think they have to import a lot of grains and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things, one of the probably biggest lessons from the war is that uh, doctrine is one thing, practice is another, and training is, is a whole other thing. And we have seen the Russians being very challenged in conducting large-scale, complex operations. And there's probably nothing more complex, you tell me, but uh, than amphibious landings in a contested environment. Um, the Chinese have never done anything like that. And few countries have ever attempted that. Uh, and even fewer have been successful at it. Um, what, what do you think the capabilities are of the Chinese to do an amphibious landing across the strait today and potentially in the future? You know, Dimitri, I think this this is sort of the ultimate question, right? And and I think, you know, the question that probably Xi Jinping himself wrestles with when he asks his military advisors, are you guys ready, you know, if I need you? Um, and they did a, if you look over the decades, you know, there was a big focus on sort of the missile capabilities we talked about. It used to be called the second artillery, but basically the rocket force. And, and that gave them the ability to sort of compel um, or they thought so, you know, I'll just beat the heck out of them with my, with my ballistic missiles and make them give up. Well, they, they kind of tried something like that in 1996 and it, and it didn't work. It backfired. You know, we, we ended up sailing a couple carriers. Um, one of them through the strait, the United States did. And that's when China realized, oh, I, I may actually need to go over there. Um, and they started working first on what we call the anti-access area denial capability, which was like, we got to keep the Americans out of this. And they've, they've done a remarkable job of that over the last couple of decades. And the, the final, the third and final piece is 
the piece that you talked about, and that's the ability to move the boots and put them on the ground. Um, and that'll be a combination of air assault and actual amphibious right on the water, um, realizing that it's, it's only 100 miles away, so you don't have to bring everybody by ship. Um, but it's still extremely, extremely challenging. Um, and but but PLA's focused on it. I mean, it's probably their number one focus for the last couple of decades overall, right? Is this mission set? And so, in my view, I think that um, they have or will very shortly in in this decade for sure have the ability to do this, you know, with with risk and with attrition that they understand. But I think um, definitely, you know, if not now, then in the next few years. Yeah, and, and of course, the Russians have also focused on airborne operations, and we've seen the disastrous attempt to, to take uh, Hustomol Airport in the initial hours of the war. Uh, Mike, any, any comments on, on any of this? Uh, sure, appreciate it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say Gustamel is disastrous. It's not really clear what went wrong in that operation, but it was a pretty small operation at the outset of the war, and it's a good counterfactual what might have happened if they were remotely successful. Clearly, the U.S. had tipped the Ukrainians off to it, and we don't know if they couldn't get reinforcements there because they couldn't hold on to the airfield long enough because Ukrainian air defense was too thick. Because Ukrainians responded too fast, so on and so forth. That, that's that's one particular part of that war that we're going to have to rebuild later on. But the the two comments I might make here is a brief interjection. Or first, you know, what I think we clearly saw on the Russian end is it is very hard to scale into conducting large scale military operations from exercises, from small wars, or small expeditionary deployments. Right? That's just the reality of it. And also, kind of military strategy, the big choices you make in terms of force structure, posture, readiness, and things you train for, they make a big difference. The Russian military, its thinking was not based around conducting strategic ground offensives in Europe or about holding large amounts of terrain. It didn't have the manpower, the logistics for that. It was built around a slightly different concept, or I'd say a substantially different concept in terms of fighting NATO. And they didn't train substantially for urban combat. And here's a big surprise. If uh, you don't train for a particular mission, uh, you're not going to do well when you show up to that specific fight, that's for sure. Uh, so those choices, to me at least, really matter. And that's putting aside all the problems the Russian military's had and kind of basic fundamentals and whatnot. And uh, a comma on China, which I will only make once because I'm very cautious about intellectual tourism, right? And, and so this will be at best a, a biter liberty on my part. The first is, is that a lot of the assumptions about war at the end of the day are political. These decisions are made by political leaders. You'd like to think the military bounds those decisions or heavily informs them. But when it comes to things like fait accompli's, these are big political gambits and calculations. The best example of the primacy of the political over the soundness of military thinking or what defense planners or defense strategists look at is the Russia-Ukraine war and Putin's belief that he could conduct a quick regime change operation in uh, three, four days. And just looking at this from a lot of things I've learned in, in the last month plus, uh, if I was a China military expert, I would definitely be asking myself, what are is likely to be the gap between expectations and Chinese performance, right? And what are the big questions that we're not asking, or, or, or at least that, that often DOD doesn't ask, because it's often very capability-focused. So I'd leave it at that. Great point. Um, Ivan, any, any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, I guess the, the one thing I'll say is we're from a 
whatever our intelligence assessments or our assessments, we we've we seem to shoot behind the target. In other words, um, we've got Russia, which I think most would say a declining sort of power, right, in the military, and we we overestimated them. You've got the Taliban, and we underestimated them. And I think with the PLA, we've consistently underestimated them. And you know, recent examples are hypersonics and other other nuclear delivery platforms. That's on the development side, not necessarily in the employment side, but still an underestimation. Um, China has gone, you know, they, they, they don't really do the art of war, you know, like Sunza would have them do. They do the science of war and they really are doubling down the PLA on taking in some ways as much of the human element out, even some of the force employment out as possible. And so, you know, I don't know whether this ultimately is going to be successful. I think the way that we're trained in our military doesn't sound like a good idea. Um, but again, they're taking it to a degree that no one's ever taken it before, you know, making everything into a formula and, and running it through, you know, ultimately, eventually AI algorithms to do tactical to strategic decision making. And so, you know, the fact that they haven't, you know, it'll be a big gamble. And I think it's going to be really difficult to sort of know, just like, just like it typically is with war. But again, we need to, uh, we need to kind of just consider all these, I guess, unknowns and variables. Well, there's certainly plenty of them. If that's uh, uh, something we learned in the last month and uh, change that it's been that. Well, thank you again for a great discussion. Uh, Mike, always uh, love your commentary and insights into this war. Truly unique uh, view that you have into the conflict. And Ivan, really, really appreciate you sharing uh, what I think is one of the most important things facing us over the next 10 years, which is this prospect of uh, Chinese invasion of Taiwan that would change the world in a, in a huge way, uh, probably even bigger way than this invasion of Ukraine has done, given the importance of China to the world economy, given the importance of semiconductors and Taiwan being the major producers of those <clears throat> advanced chips and other chips as well. But thank you again, gentlemen. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming and listening. Uh, we'll post a recording out shortly, and uh, we'll hopefully see you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dimitri. Thanks for having me back.